0: Welcome to PSQH the podcast. I'm your host Jay Kumar, editor-in-chief of PSQH. On this episode I talked to Megan De Giorgio, senior clinical manager at Gojo Industries about getting back to basics with hand hygiene. And now on to the interview. I'm joined today by Megan De Giorgio, senior clinical manager at Gojo Industries. Welcome Megan.
1: Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. Uh and Before we get started talking about hand hygiene, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at Gojo.
1: Sure, no problem. Um, So I am currently the senior clinical manager at Gojo Industries, and I am based in northeast Ohio. I actually started my career as a pediatric nurse, and then I had an interest in infection prevention and was able to move over into that area of the hospital and so, I spent the majority of my career in infection prevention at the Cleveland Clinic main campus. So, I'm what's called an infection preventionist. I'm certified in infection control, and I'm also a fellow of the Association for Professionals in Infection Control, which is our professional organization. I've been in the field for, I would say, almost 20 years. So there have been a couple of pandemics sprinkled in there along the way, Um, some public reporting of infections through the Affordable Care Act. That was a big change in the field. And really, I guess what I've seen is just a greater emphasis on transparency around infection as well as just outcomes in general. And a transition in the field from control to prevention, as evidenced by the change in name. So when I started, I was actually called an infection control practitioner. And then APIC made the decision to change it to infection preventionist. That was a very intentional change on their part. And I'll add that I really love the field and I admire and respect my fellow infection preventionists have been on the front lines of a couple of really tough years and counting. So um, thank you to all of the infection preventionists who may be listening today.
0: Um, and yeah, it certainly has been a tough uh, tough stretch, but I mean, I guess, uh, you know, thankfully, we had you guys around to to guide us, you know, because, you know, I, I've been writing about infection control and prevention for probably about 20 years as well. And, and, you know, it's just amazing, you know, how so much of what, you know, you, you know, people I would interview were talking about 20 years ago, you know, actually came to be in the last couple of years. You know, we were always being warned about potential pandemics and then boom, here it is. And, you know, um, granted things didn't go super smoothly, but, you know, we knew what we were supposed to do anyways.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Um, but today, we were, I want to talk to you about um, hand hygiene, um, and I was wondering if you could tell me sort of about the current state of hand hygiene uh, in the industry.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, first of all, my favorite topic, hand hygiene, love hand hygiene, that's what I do all day long, but that's an interesting question, what the current state of hand hygiene is, and I mean, do we really know? <laughs> and I think the answer to that is maybe, it depends kind of so direct observation is still the primary method for measuring hand hygiene and as we know it's fraught with issues including the hawthorne effect which means people behave differently if they know they're being watched Um, issues of interrater reliability so like do i monitor hand hygiene the same way that you do if we're looking at the exact same scenario would we both consider it a compliant or a non-compliant event and then statistically insignificant sample sizes. So you're just very limited with what you can do with direct observation. But it's still what the majority of hospitals are using and compliance using direct observation is generally much, much lower than what we'd like it to be. And it's, it's kind of been stuck at um, less than 50, 50, percent for decades. And I actually, there was a recent meta-analysis in the Journal of Hospital Infection that was published just this September that demonstrated just what we're talking about. And, and, you know, remember that a meta-analysis is looking at many, many different studies. And they found that nurses were at about 52% compliance and doctors were at about 45% compliance. And, you know, the authors actually acknowledged the wide variability in compliance estimates and the differences in methodological quality of hand hygiene studies, and they they concluded that we need to improve how we conduct and report hand hygiene studies. So that's direct observation. There's another way to monitor hand hygiene electronically, monitoring it 24-7, and it, it eliminates some of the concerns that we have with direct observation. So you sort of get rid of the Hawthorne effect to a certain extent. Um, You certainly take care of that small sample size concern, and then you take away that issue of inter-rater reliability. And uh, Gojo actually looked at, because we have an automated hand hygiene compliance monitoring system, we looked at about 10 hospitals worth of data, which um, added up to be a, a little less than 250 million opportunities for hand hygiene. And we found that the median hand hygiene performance rate was about 37%. Wow. Um, Yeah. So definitely less than 50%. And remember, I mean, just the sheer number of opportunities is so different than direct observation, but we're still seeing it's not really an apples to apples comparison. But the bottom line is we're not where we want to be. But what was the most eye opening was the sheer number of opportunities per room per day. And when you break it down like that, you, we have a median of about 212 opportunities for hand hygiene per patient room per day. So that's an awful lot of hand hygiene that should be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that the burden of hand hygiene on healthcare workers is significant. But it's so very important to patient safety, and it deserves greater attention. And then overlaying all of this is a global pandemic that's really turned hospitals upside down. And we're still doing the postmortem on how, um, you know, the pandemic has affected hospitals and healthcare in general. But if we look at the published studies of hand hygiene during the pandemic, we see that there were no gains made despite the situation, or that hand hygiene temporarily improved and then quickly decreased back to baseline or below. So that's the current state of hand hygiene from my perspective, Jay. I
0: um, actually wanted to ask, what what is the current uh, requirement for hand hygiene, in, you know, from Joint Commission, CMS, etc.
1: That's a great question. The current requirement is that, for, well, let's, let's start with Joint Commission. Um, the Joint Commission wants you to follow either the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or World Health Organization hand hygiene guidelines. So you have to adopt one or the other. Um, Most places you have a choice. There are some states that say that you have to use CDC, but they want you to adopt the 1A and 1B recommendations which are supported by the the most amount of science um, and data behind them. And then Um, Joint Commission has national patient safety goals Mm -hmm. and they, uh, you know, a lot of people think the Joint Commission wants us to be at 90% compliance. And I think we're still stuck on that and it's doing us a great disservice as far as hand hygiene improvement. And I think that was the case many, many years ago that they did require that. But now what they actually require is that hospitals get a baseline for what their hand hygiene is. And they don't tell you the method that you have to use. Most people are using direct observation that you get some sort of baseline that you make goals for how you're going to improve and you demonstrate that you're making improvement and that you're working towards your goals. So there's no 90% requirement out there. And when you require 90%, everyone just kind of gets to 90%. Now keep in mind that you know the Joint Commission and CMS they're just requiring us to do the minimum. So these are the minimum standards for safe patient care. So that's kind of in a nutshell what um, they want you to do. Uh, CMS wants you to um, implement, you know, the hand hygiene guidelines as well. So you know, they're they're kind of similar, but Joint Commission is the one that's um, most people are familiar with.
0: Yeah. So why do you think the numbers are so low?
1: Because uh, hand hygiene is. Very simple, but it's not easy. (laughs) It's a very simple act, but think of the sheer—as we talked about um, before—when I mentioned the the data that we have, just the sheer number of opportunities. I can't think of any other patient safety activity that's performed as much as hand hygiene in in a hospital by as many people every single day. Every single person is supposed to be performing hand hygiene. How do you get your arms around that in a, you know, 500 bed hospital or 150 bed hospital or a thousand bed hospital. It's really difficult. It's very simple, the act of performing hand hygiene, but nothing about building, improving, sustaining hand hygiene compliance or a program is easy.
0: So how should hospitals build an effective hand hygiene program?
1: Well, there are, so ma- I, there are so many factors right now that are impacting quality of care in hospitals. We have staffing issues, burnout. So, I, you know, we'd really be remiss if we didn't acknowledge those challenges facing healthcare facilities today. And, you know, I was, I came across, I was scrolling through my phone and I saw that today, I think it's today, 15,000 nurses in Minnesota walked off yeah. the job citing um, concerns around short staffing and just the concerns about the quality of care that they're able to provide. And this wasn't just about pay or about money for them. So this is a tough time all around for many healthcare facilities in many, many different ways. And when it comes to hand hygiene, getting back to your question, while it can feel like they are, most hospitals are not starting from scratch when it comes to hand hygiene. Uh many of us can relate to the idea of losing weight and then gaining it back. And so maybe your weight is at an all-time high and you're really disappointed and you've got to like get back on your program but you're not starting from scratch in terms of expertise or knowledge if you decide to embark on that weight loss journey again. Um so you didn't sustain your weight loss and, or you didn't meet your goal but you're not starting with zero knowledge. And so maybe you need to restart small. And these are both very complicated things, losing weight or making any sort of behavioral change and hand hygiene. So they're, they're not the same, but there are some similar ideas. But the work that goes into building, improving, and sustaining hand hygiene is compliance is a really long slog. It takes years, not months. And it's not something that once you achieve it, you take your eye off the ball. But you have to start somewhere. And most facilities that have done this well have—they've uh, made it an organizational priority, and so every—you know—every person in the organization is aware that it's a priority, and they're—they're they're living and breathing that every day. And they built upon the multimodal approach in some form or another. It's uh, the World Health Organization's multimodal approach for hand hygiene. I think. That's probably the, the, the best laid out example of how to improve hand hygiene. Um, and, you know, they do this over the course of years, not months. And it's just a constant journey. And as I said, you just don't take your eye off the ball. You have to just it's, it's relentless incrementalism is what it is. So the World Health Organization multimodal approach, it's built on a compiled set of recommendations that are really well referenced. It's a very long document, but then, you know, it's all online. You can get kind of the cliff notes version of it too, but the the five essential elements that make up this multimodal strategy are making alcohol-based hand rub available. So that's called system change, making sure that you have the infrastructure, you know, sinks uh, available to healthcare workers so that they can actually do hand hygiene Training and education, monitoring hand hygiene practices and giving that performance feedback, reminders in the workplace and creating a culture of safety. And, you know, those are five elements, but they're all, you know, some of them are more complicated than others. Um, And, you know, it's but when it comes down to the individual healthcare worker the most important message should be to perform hand hygiene on the way in and the way out of the patient's room at minimum and that's a really good place to start and as i said before hand hygiene is really simple but it's not easy but if you start building that expectation and start building that habit in healthcare workers that's a really good place to start um So if you feel like you're starting from scratch, those are places to start. Um, One of the other things that I wanted to mention is that you really need to start enlisting hand hygiene champions. Um, Those can be managers, informal leaders, or people that have a particular interest in the unit on patient safety. And just begin normalizing the process of just-in-time coaching. And that just means stopping someone who didn't perform hand hygiene on the spot and telling them why they should have done it differently or what they missed. And this is something that can be done even if your organization as a whole isn't doing very well with hand hygiene and they haven't like launched their major initiative to improve it or they, you know, they haven't quite gotten it together yet. Those are something that local units can do on their own. And You know, the way hand hygiene compliance is checked now, it's usually done in spot checks, I like to call it, Mm -hmm. by either infection prevention or secret shoppers in a facility. And these, it's just not enough. You know, we talk about the issues with direct observation. They're not there 24-7. But you know who is there 24-7? Some degree of unit leadership. You either have a charge nurse or you have a nurse manager or you have an informal leader on the unit. And if you all sort of um, sign on to this, you can create that culture within your nursing unit. And that's maybe different than the rest of the hospital at that time. So there are always those units that perform better than others. And you know every infection preventionist knows what those units are in their hospital. Basically the manager or local unit hand hygiene champion is in a better position to really help with this just-in-time coaching frequently and consistently. And if a healthcare worker knows that hand hygiene hygiene is important to their manager, then it becomes important to them, Mm
0: -hmm. period. Um, So when is the right time to wash your hands thoroughly as opposed to sanitize with hand rub?
1: Yeah, great question. And there is a lot of confusion around this still, even after the pandemic. Um, most of the time you should be using an alcohol-based hand rub, and I I want to quickly infuse in here that only alcohol-based hand rubs are recommended in healthcare. We do not, our guidelines, i.e. the CDC or WHO guidelines, do not support the use of non-alcohol-based hand rubs that contain actives like benzalkonium chloride. So alcohol-based hand rubs are the, the gold standard here. And they're also, because they're not supported by the CDC or the World Health Organization, they're not going to be supported by the Joint Commission who expects you as your member to adopt either one of those hand hygiene recommendations. But, so kind of overlaying this is alcohol-based hand rub is the workhorse of hand hygiene. And remember how we talked about that data set with, you know, millions of hand hygiene data points. When we look at that, You know, we can look at hundreds of millions of data points, and 85% of the time, these facilities are using alcohol-based hand rub, and that's about where it should be. It it might even need to be a little bit higher, but that's kind of where most facilities net out. And so soap and water is really minimally used, and that's in line with what these guidelines are telling us. When hands are visibly dirty or contaminated or soiled, with blood or bodily fluids. And quite frankly, that does not happen very often in healthcare because we wear gloves all the time. Right. Um, I think what drives a lot of soap and water use is many facilities have added a policy about y- per- using a soap and water hand wash after caring for a patient with C. diff. So that you know adds to the indications for perf- performing hand hygiene with soap and water. But the rest of the time, we should be using alcohol based hand rub. And why? Because there is just so much evidence around better efficacy, um, better comp- compliance, ease of use, speed. It's better for your, your skin. Yet, um, y- you know, most people think that alcohol based hand rub is drying out their skin and it's not. So, for all of those reasons, alcohol based hand rub is preferred.
0: Um, How should hospitals choose the right products for their facilities?
1: Well, the pandemic has certainly opened our eyes to products that are less than optimal from an aesthetic standpoint. I know we all remember uh, all of these new manufacturers getting on board with the making of alcohol-based hand rubs and distilleries. And, you know, these were all good intentions, and they were trying to step in when a lot of manufacturers just could not keep up with demand. So they were making alcohol-based hand rub for the first time. There was a lot of unpleasant product out there in the market that was runny, smelly, or sticky. I know my kid's school is still trying to work through their um, pandemic supply, and my daughter always says, Mom, the alcohol-based hand rub at school smells terrible. I don't like to use it. So it's out there still. But it turned out that a lot of it contained dangerous impurities or inadequate levels of active ingredients and there were other safety concerns that led to the FDA to include more than 350 brands of these hand sanitizers on their do not use list. I don't know how much of it is still on the market but I think it's impacted healthcare workers overall perception of alcohol-based hand rub and we need to return to products that have strong research and development behind them And that's gonna be really critical um, moving forward. So pandemic aside, products used for healthcare should meet Food and Drug Administration's efficacy requirements. And I think one of the important things for healthcare workers to know and people that are making decisions around products is that you need to know that your, your product is meeting those standards, but that you don't have to take multiple pumps of the dispenser in order to get that efficacy because we're struggling enough with getting healthcare workers to the dispenser in the first place. Why would we want a product that requires multiple dispenses? And we also need to ensure that healthcare workers like the products because if they don't like the products, um, if it's not helping to maintain their skin health or it's resulting in unpleasant aesthetics like a sticky tacky buildup or something like that, they're going to find a workaround. They're busy people that work hard and they don't have time to mess around. So they might just skip the alcohol-based hand rub and move to soap and water, which, you know, we have to keep that delicate balance of how often we should be using soap and water. So uh, it's really important to choose good products for your facility.
0: And you you mentioned skin health. How important is uh, is skin care uh, when it comes to hand hygiene?
1: Yeah, one of my favorite topics uh, for many reasons, and I spend a lot of time talking about it. First, because I live in Northeast Ohio, where our winters are not fun for our skin. As soon as it gets cold out, my you know my skin gets dry. Yeah. But I also just really don't like seeing healthcare workers suffer unnecessarily. I know it sounds cheesy to say, but it's true. Um, healthcare workers' hands are their most important tool. So we talked about choosing the right product well that includes considering skin health and it includes incorporating lotion into your skin care routine especially as we head into winter you know the game of thrones winter's coming it's coming and if you've been doing a lot of like cooking or gardening or pottery or the weather's changing you have to do something different with your hands you can't expect to take care of your hands in the same way that you do in summer as you do in winter. I just know that when winter comes, I have to make sure there's lotion in every bathroom at our house. And there are just so many instances where our baseline skincare routine is just not enough. So if your skin starts to feel dry or different, it's just best to jump ahead of it and start modifying your routine. And Generally within healthcare facilities, the lotions that are provided, they are meant to do a specific job without interfering with gloving, et cetera. So they're not super thick or heavy. I always advise healthcare workers to to use that hospital-approved lotion. And hospital-approved is a key word here because you want to make sure that you're not using Uh, a certain brand that's very smelly, Bath and Body Works, it's not meant for the hospital world. It's meant for the consumer world. Um, You don't want to be using that in a hospital. It may not be compatible with other um, hand hygiene products that you're using. It may not be compatible with gloves, not to mention we don't like overly fragranced things in healthcare because it can be offensive to patients and for a a whole host of other reasons. But um, so if you're at home Well, let me back up. During your shift at the at the hospital or healthcare facility, I recommend that you use it a couple times throughout your workday. And I know that's tough when you're a busy nurse or a busy healthcare worker. But if you can squeeze it in, no pun intended, a couple of lotion uses during your shift it can go a long way. And then at home, I always tell healthcare workers to use a heavier cream, um, you know, a non a a fragrance free heavier cream. which we wouldn't want to use during the workday because you would have slippery, greasy hands. But if you're at home, if you can do this several times and especially right after getting out of the shower or before going to sleep where it can stand your skin for a long time, it can really help. And then we can't underestimate how important minimizing soap and water is to when it's indicated because water alone removes lipids from our skin. When we were kids and we would be in the pool for hours and our skin would get pruned. That's transepidermal water loss. So the, that's the lipids that hold together our skin cells. Um, uh, our lipid, the lipids are being removed by the water alone. And then when you add surfactants and soap to that scenario, plus paper towel drying, it's just, you get the idea. So uh, use alcohol-based hand rub and squeeze in that lotion And um, that's, you know, that's my public service announcement (laughs) now that winter is on its way.
0: What about the uh, type of soap you use, especially like, you know, I guess at home, you know, I know that there's a lot of uh, antibacterial soaps uh, available that people tend to use. Is that, you know, more harmful in terms of drying your hands out or what kinds of soap would you recommend?
1: It always depends on the formulation. So uh, I can't tell you like all antimicrobial soaps dry out your skin. It really depends on how it's formulated. What I can tell you is that there is no soap by nature of how soap works because you can't specifically target the germs and the the bacteria and not target the lipids for removal. So by nature of how it works, it is not going to provide the skin care that an alcohol-based hand rub is. Alcohol-based hand rubs, um, once the alcohol flashes off and dries, it leaves behind moisturizers and emollients. Um, a lot of people think that the alcohol is drying out their hands, but it's not. It's the it's other things that damage your skin. Alcohol alerts you to the damage, much like if you were to put it on a hand with a paper cut. So it didn't cause the damage, but it tells you it's there. As far as using an antimicrobial or a non-antimicrobial soap, we always want to look back to the guidance and neither the CDC nor the WHO, the World Health Organization, assert a preference of one over the other. There's just not, not enough data to show that you you have the outcome differences between a non-antimicrobial or an antimicrobial. So, plus, if we're using alcohol-based hand rub for the majority of hand hygiene events, then The soap and water that you choose is, I'm sorry, the soap that you choose is important, but it's less important, perhaps, than choosing a really, really well-formulated alcohol-based hand rub. We want you to to choose a really well-formulated soap and water, soap as well, but you don't necessarily have to have an antimicrobial soap. That's a, a decision that needs to be made at a local level by the hospital based on a number of different factors. And we could have a whole separate podcast on that, but I'll kind of, I think that kind of sums it up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So what's your sort of, you know, take going forward with hand hygiene? I mean, obviously there's a lot of knowledge out there and and people are getting the message. Um, Do you feel like things are going to continue to improve in terms of compliance?
1: I hope so. Um, I really hope that... I hope that it does. I think that you know we're just sort of at this transitional point where we've got to figure out a lot of different things in healthcare. But I think everyone recognizes the importance of hand hygiene to patient safety as this foundational infection control practice. Um, I would I would tell people that you know don't give up. Start somewhere. You have to start somewhere and. You know, like I said, getting hands under the dispensers is a great place to start. And you can achieve that at a local level. You can start somewhere at a local level. And the other thing that I'll say is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. So, um, you know, we had we didn't touch on this, but the indications for hand hygiene are You know, before touching a patient, before performing a clean or aseptic procedure, after a body fluid exposure, after touching a patient or after touching their patient's surroundings. And so, you know, those are the five moments for hand hygiene, but we really measure in and out in facilities because for many reasons, it's easier to see. A lot of people are trained that way but there are, you know, there are indications beyond in and out. So, but what I would tell people just start with in and out, that's a good place to start, you know, and if you can get in and out, then um, there's an analysis of over 27 studies that demonstrated that moments one, four, and five, which are that before touching a patient, before a clean procedure, and after touching a patient's environment counts for about 81% of all the five moments. So it's a good place to start It's an easy thing to monitor, not not necessarily always an easy thing to monitor, but it's a possible thing to monitor. can't monitor what's happening behind a closed door if you're not in there. So we have to start somewhere. And there's all sorts of help out there online, you know, within the World Health Organization Guidelines. And, you know, everyone's working towards this, but just start somewhere and, and make small improvements because those add up over time. And, and you know, my, my parting advice, I think, for many facilities is that this is a process of years, not months. And it's just not taking your eye off the ball.
0: Yeah, it's not going to happen overnight. Right. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great.
1: Thank you for having me, Jay. I really appreciate it. And thank you to all the healthcare workers and infection preventionists out there for showing up every day and doing what you do. All right.
0: That wraps up episode 63 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.